welcome to the Blue Mountain Center podcast. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by... Zohar. Hi, Zohar. Um, I've been meaning to talk to you about um, crying at movies. And it's been on my mind lately because... Well, we went to the Indian Lake Theater twice this week, which is a nonprofit movie theater that was rescued by a lot of concerned citizens in 2009 because it was shutting down. And um, now it shows movies for five bucks. Um, and a good selection of movies we saw um, Inside Out and Me and Earl and the Dying Girl uh, this week and after Me and Earl and the Dying Girl I felt like I was being interrogated by all the residents because I was asked individually multiple times um, oh Luke did you 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 cried uh, it wasn't even a so question the first it was just... question was not did you like the movie it was did you cry yeah yeah it was I was asked did I cry before I was even asked if I liked the movie or not and I did not cry. Um, How do you feel about that, Luke? I, f- I feel okay. But then I, because I was asked about it so many times, I, I started to think, is this some sort of uh, deficiency in me that um, I'm not I, – I didn't – and I'm not trying to – I feel like I'm Maybe trying to sound tough right now. Luke. Oh, yeah. That's probably why. You know, I didn't – You need to drink more water. Uh, get those tear ducts flowing. So, but you, I mean, you cried during all movies. Mm-hmm. Hydration's also very important to me. <laughs> I drink a lot of water. So when you go to the movie and you're ready to cry, you make sure that you hydrate and that's how you... Uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And also take, um, like, some sort of salt, salty supplement or something, right? Yes, I take a salty supplement <laughs> and I drink a lot of water and I go to sad movies. Um, but you liked you liked both movies. I did right? like both movies. I think I shed a single tear during Inside Out, uh, which was a very nice children's movie. And I don't usually like children's movie about a girl who's learning how to navigate her emotions. Um, and I really bawled during Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Yeah, it was. It had a sad ending. It really snuck up on you, as they say. Mm. Uh, yep. Is that a spoiler, by the way? If you say that a movie has a surprise ending. I didn't say it has a surprise ending. What did you say? You said it snuck up on you. Yeah. Uh, Like, emotionally, it's not. Like, you're laughing through a lot of the movie. It's, you you know it's going to be sad because it's called Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Hmm. Yeah, true. That is kind of a spoiler. Yeah. Um... But I'd say just kind of the emotional beats of the movie, that's what sneaks up on you. Mm, okay. Nice recovery there. You didn't give <laughs> yeah. away, you didn't spoil anything. I don't think I did. Zohar, who did you talk to this week? This week I talked to John Provost, who was a resident here last session. Um, he's a partner at Beeson, Tayer, and Bodine, a labor law, for- labor law firm in Northern California. He's a writer and a lifelong advocate for working people. And a totally cool guy. Um, yes. Who we enjoyed. Ha- I, sorry, I cut you off. No, 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 you can say it. He was a totally cool guy. Yeah. We enjoyed having him here yeah. a ton. Yeah. Super helpful. I also wanted to say he was this year's born Chertkoff resident for uh, labor and social justice. Um, and not only was he the second ever resident who was given this this title but he was a close personal friend of born Cherkov, who was a friend of being a longtime friend of bmc's um also a labor lawyer and advocate for working people in northern california um and he passed away in 2013 and uh the community rallied together to create this named endowed residency for him in his honor to kind of carry on his legacy and his work and John, super nice guy, great resident, etc., uh, really lived up to that because he was a friend of Boren's and is working pretty closely in the same veins that Boren dedicated his life to. Yeah. And we get into that in the podcast. Oh, good. Well, I can't wait to listen. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear it right now. Without any further ado. <laughs> Here's John Provost talking to Zohar. New York has a very strong labor history, 
And uh, so I certainly was aware of labor issues from a young age and uh, conceptually supported the idea of workers having uh, power and, and being able to negotiate with employers and, uh, you know, have some say over the terms and conditions of their employment. I didn't actually get involved in the labor movement until I started working. And I worked as a newspaper reporter uh, for a couple of years, and then I became an editor. And uh, I was working at a small, new, small newspaper in Northern California, and the typographical union came around organizing uh, the entire newspaper. And uh, the publisher did not treat us particularly well. And so when they asked me if I wanted to sign a card saying that I wished to be represented by the union, I said, sure. And I signed up and we voted the union in and I got involved negotiating the first labor agreement. And I was the shop steward there at the newspaper and dealt with management on different issues. And I thought that was pretty interesting and uh, then decided to go to law school and become a labor attorney. So I want to go back a little bit. And when you, um, when the union came to the newspaper you were working on and you said you were not being treated particularly well, what are some of the things that you mean by that? Um, well, I wasn't paid a lot as a beginning reporter. I was getting paid $190 a month. Um, but they actually, I, I went there right out of um, uh, journalism school from San Francisco State. And when I was hired, uh, the publisher told me that I would be getting $200 a week. And I moved lock, stock, and barrel from San Francisco up to Grass Valley, California, got a little place, got my first paycheck, and it was $190. And I went to the publisher and said, Jack, um, I thought I was getting $200 a week. And he said, no, it was $190. And I said, no, I, I thought it was $200. And he said, well, you must have made a mistake. Well, I didn't make a mistake, but what was I going to do? I've heard that line before, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it just left a bad taste in my mouth. And, um, and the publisher had a, a rather imperious attitude, the way he treated uh, the editorial staff in particular. He came from an advertising background. So his primary interest was in selling advertising, not so much reporting the news. He, I think he viewed the newsroom as the uh, a necessary evil. Mm. <laughs> so I think that was why I was particularly interested in joining the union. If he had not lied to me, um, I don't know. I don't know if I would have um, signed up or not, but I did. Were you scared <laughs> when you first signed up? I wasn't, although I know there were other people who, um, who signed up who were scared. Um, I was single. I was just starting out. Um, if that hadn't worked out, I was confident that I would find another job. Um, so it was not that big a deal to me. Um, I, you know, people who were working there who had families, and it was a small town, so there weren't a lot of jobs available. Um, I think they had much more at risk, and I think they were more scared, understandably so. And I've seen people um, go through that in my years as, a, as an attorney. Um, when, when you're working for a living and trying to support a family, um, there's much more to lose. So then after working at this newspaper and being a shop steward, you went into labor law, and you've been working for the same firm for a number of years. 29. Right? 29 years. A long time. Tell me what your role in an organizing campaign as a labor lawyer is. Okay. Well, in an organizing campaign, um, unless you can get the employer to agree informally to recognize the union, you have to go through the National Labor Relations Board and you file uh, a petition for an election. You have to show that you have support from at least 30% of the employees for the NLRB to... Um, order an election, although as a practical matter, the union needs more than 50%, probably 70 or 80% in order to really feel confident in, in its chances of winning. Um, so and how many union campaigns, in your experience, go to an election? Oh, uh, the 
great majority of them do. Um, and, uh, you know, so I've probably been involved in a hundred or more union elections. Wow. Um, out of that number, I would say the union, pro the union has probably lost more than it's won. Um, because labor law, uh, since the Taft-Hartley amendments of 1947, um, really allow the employer to defeat the union. Um, there are a lot of um, a lot of aspects to the law that employers have become very sophisticated in taking advantage of, and they use those to defeat unions. What aspects of the law are those? Well, before the Taft-Hartley law, the National Labor Relations Act, which passed in 1935 under Franklin Roosevelt, um, provided that if a union showed majority support simply by submitting a petition or card signed by a majority of the employees, the employer then was required to bargain with the union, negotiate for a contract. Taft-Hartley said, well, if the employer wants to do that, that's fine, but they don't have to. And if the employer doesn't want to, then there, there needs to be an election, theoretically, for the employees to be able to exercise their free choice. What happens, though, is that employers force hearings in front of the NORB on various pre-election issues. For example, they may say, um, okay, this is a uh, food warehouse, and they've got drivers and warehousemen and forklift people and clerical employees. And the union files for an election among everybody employed there. And the employer says, well, no, we think the clerical employees should not be in the unit. And they force a hearing in front of the NORB. And it can take weeks or sometimes even months for these issues to be resolved through the hearing process. In the meantime, the employers have hired these very sophisticated anti-union uh, consultants, as they call them, union busters, as the employees and unions call them. And they go into the workplace and the employees are required to attend meetings on a daily basis with these people. And they're basically... Um, uh, filled with propaganda, um, and they're indoctrinated over a period of weeks or months as to how bad the union is and all the union wants is their money, and there's going to be a strike, and you're going to, you know, you could lose your job, and all these terrible things could happen. And very often, they are successful in turning around the employees. And I've seen union organizing efforts where 80% of the employees sign cards saying, we want the union. Two months later, by the time it gets to the election, 80% vote against the union in the election. And of course, the union doesn't have the access to the employees. It'd be one thing if, 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 there was, if it was like, I don't know, some kind of um, equal time uh, requirement as you have um, with the, the airwaves and federal elections. And um, uh, you required... Um, all the candidates to receive equal airtime, and then people can judge who they want to vote for. The union doesn't have the access to the employees, and the employer can require them, because they're being paid, to go to these meetings every day. So what's the, in, in a legal perspective, how are union busters, what's the loophole that allows for union busters or consultants, quote unquote? Well... The law says you cannot threaten an employee or coerce them or intimidate them to vote against the union or for the union. And um, you can't um, promise them a benefit and you can't threaten them with some harm. So if the employer said, um, if you vote for the union, I'm going to fire you, that would be clearly illegal. If the employer said, I'm going to give you a big fat raise if you vote against the union, that would be illegal. What these consultants do is um, they go right up to the edge without going over the line. So they won't um, threaten you with losing your job, but they'll say, um, well, you know, anything could happen. You know, if the union comes in, we start negotiating, you might get a raise. You could get less than what you're getting now. Now, that sounds to me like you're suggesting that they could have their wages cut. Um, but the National Labor Relations Board would say, 
no, that's not really a threat. That's just telling the employee realistically what could happen in the course of negotiation. Well, I've never seen an employer come into negotiations and suggest cutting people's wages. So that's not what happens. But the union busters are very sophisticated in how they can uh, make these coercive, intimidating kinds of statements without crossing the line to where the labor board would do anything about it. Yeah. And do you have any idea how big of an industry union busting is or how much money goes into these campaigns from an, an employer side? Um, I, I don't really. They're required to um, uh, file with the Department of Labor um, when you're in, engaged in what they call persuader activities. Um, these groups are supposed to file statements um, with the Department of Labor. But um, when I've been involved in campaigns, very often I find that um, um, if there is a labor consultant involved in a campaign for an employer, um, number one, a lot of times they don't even tell the employees who they are. They won't give out business cards. They won't say who they are. Uh, so it's difficult to find out really who they are. When you do, a lot of times you find that they haven't filed anything with the Department of Labor for three or four years. So it's hard to get current information. Um, I, I did have experience um, last year with one where uh, they were um, uh, advocating for Fry's Electronics, a big um, like warehouse electronics company on the West Coast. And I found out who the consultant was and how much they had been paid in their last campaign. And um, it was something like uh, $50,000. Um, and that was for, you know, a month's worth of work. Wow. Um, and I think that, and that was probably a relatively small group. Uh, the Marquez Brothers campaign, which I'm writing about in my book, um, they had four people at the, at the plant there full time. Um, there was a large facility with two big plants. So they had two of the union busters in each plant. And they used very high-priced attorneys. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if they spent, um, you know, millions of dollars in the course of the campaign over about a two-year period. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I want to get to your book, but I also want to um, go back to my question about wins. And I, I under, I reread the introduction to your book today, and I understand that the project is sort of it's placing this. Um, this particular campaign at the Marquez Brothers in the context of um, the shift in the labor movement post-Taft-Hartley and um, sort of a, a less optimistic view of what the options for working people are right now. But I do, after working in the movement for 29 years, I feel like you must have some inspiring moments that carry you through. Um, well... One inspiring thing is um, in situations where there are collective bargaining agreements and where there are grievance procedures that uh, culminate in binding arbitration, um, every once in a while you have somebody who's fired and uh, it's an unjust situation, manifestly unjust. Um, and when you can, and, and you go to arbitration, and the arbitrator makes a final binding decision, uh, and only in very extraordinary circumstances could you ever get an arbitrator's decision overruled. Um, when you win a case like that, that's a pretty good feeling. Can you um, remember an example of the. Uh, there was ex an example a number of years ago with a large dairy uh, product manufacturing plant, and there was a fellow who was uh, Filipino. And he had uh, an accent. His English was not very good. And he was working on a, um, uh, a production line where they were bagging powdered milk. And the powdered milk came off the assembly line in 50-pound bags. And then he was responsible for um, securing these bags or tying them up and then putting them on pallets 
and then they would go out for shipment. And uh, there were a couple of um, uh, Caucasian guys who were in the plant and they were messing around with this fellow. They were basically sabotaging his machine so that, um, and I don't remember exactly what it was doing, but it was fouling it up. And so he would then have to go back and clean up spilled powdered milk, or I, I forget exactly what it was, but it was, it was a problem. And these two jerks were there and they were messing with him and they were snickering behind his back and they always made fun of him because of his accent and, and whatnot. Well, he got uh, frustrated and upset and he uh, said something to the effect of, uh, if I had a gun, I ought to shoot you or something like that. And employers take that kind of thing very seriously, understandably so, uh, and I, I get that. But this fellow had worked there for, I don't know, 12 or 15 years. He was a good guy. Everybody agreed. He did a good job. Um, there was no problem with him before. And, you know, his English wasn't very good. It was just something that he blurted out in, in a moment of uh, uh, frustration and anger. So we went to arbitration and, and he had a family, you know, he had a wife and a couple of kids and this was a job in a small town that paid him $20 an hour with good benefits. There weren't any other jobs like that that, that he was going to be able to get. So uh, it's a very nice feeling when uh, you have a case like that and you can prevail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is good. Yeah, and I, I mean, I can understand why employers take statements like that seriously, but I've also worked in food service for a long time and I've had managers say very inappropriate things to me. It's not, <laughs> I'm sure. I don't, and it has never been taken seriously enough for any of them to get fired. So, um, yeah, it's very inspiring that you were able to get him his job back. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about the book that you're working on here at Blue Mountain Center. Well, um, one of the uh, larger campaigns that I've worked on in recent years involved Marquez Brothers, which is also in the um, uh, San Joaquin Valley of California, and they uh, make all kinds of Mexican food products, including cheese. And uh, they have a cheese manufacturing plant in Hanford, which is about 30 miles away from Fresno. They have about 200 employees. 98% are Latino. Um, according to estimates, 70 to 80% of them are undocumented and, uh, the employee pay, uh, the employer rather pays, um, about minimum wage or was paying minimum wage or just a little bit more than minimum wage to about two thirds of the employees. Um, two thirds of them fell into the category of packers and basically they're working on a, on an assembly line. Uh, and they're packaging cheese as it's coming off the assembly line. Not terribly skilled work. Um, nonetheless, all the other big dairy companies in the area, uh, Land O'Lakes, Kraft Foods, Haagen-Dazs, um, California Dairies, Dean Foods, big companies with plants all over the, the country, um, they pay their employees $20, $22, $24 an hour. Uh, they provide fully paid employer, not fully paid, but they pay most of the cost of medical, including depending coverage for the employees. They're in a Teamsters pension plan, which will give them a nice pension when they retire. And, um, you know, good vacation, holidays, all that stuff. Marquez Brothers gave people two days of sick leave a year. Um, they paid very little of the um, medical for the employees. And because they were only getting minimum wage or not much more, they couldn't afford to take the medical anyway. And they certainly couldn't afford to cover their dependents. Um, so uh, uh, Rosie Mendoza, uh, who is a single mom uh, with two daughters, um, approached the Teamster, Teamsters and asked if they would be interested in representing her and her coworkers. And the union said yes. They had me file a petition. Um, we, we did so after Rosie and her co-workers got, I think, about 80% of the employees to sign authorization cards. 
the employer then um, hired the anti-union uh, union busters or consultants to start working on these people every day. And the local union official that I was dealing with was fairly new. Um, even though he had been a union member and a Land O'Lakes employee for 25 years, he had never been directly involved in an organizing campaign. And I said, boy, this is, you know, we, we have to be careful. You know, you're, you're need to, you need to have meetings with the employees and tell them what to expect from these union busters and try to inoculate them against what they're going to be exposed to. Um, but Rosie um, told Chester, no, we're fine. We're strong. We're solidly behind the union. You don't have to do that. It's going to be counterproductive. Just let us go. So Chester did the, the um, secretary-treasurer of that Teamsters local. And uh, I was very concerned that it was going to go south, but sure enough, the employees voted two to one in favor of the union. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. And um, uh, I, they didn't believe all the nonsense that, that the union busters were trying to tell them. But that was only part of the battle. And um, uh, I draw a parallel in the at the beginning of the book to um, the story of Norma Ray, the movie with Sally Field, um, which was also based on a true story. And in Norma Ray, there's a big fight over getting the union into a textile plant in, uh, I think, South Carolina. And at the end of the movie, there's a big election. The union wins the election. Everybody's hugging and cheering. And that's the triumphant end of the movie. Well, in real life, it took the union there, the textile workers of, of America, took them six years to get a contract with J.P. Stevens' company. And uh, at Marquez Brothers, even though we won the election handily, uh, I knew we were going to have probably a fight on our hands to, uh, uh, to get a contract. And sure enough, um, I mean, and this is one of the other failings of the Taft-Hartley Act is... After the election, the union is certified as the bargaining representative by the Labor Board for a period of one year. So basically, you have a year in which to try to negotiate your contract with the employer. Marquez Brothers did everything they could to slow the process down. Um, they didn't respond to our request for meeting dates for a month. When they did agree, when they did... Um, uh, communicate with us. They agreed to one day in September 2012. We asked for many more dates. They agreed to meet two days in October, two days in November, two days in December. And then when we would meet, they'd show up late. Um, they'd leave early. They were never prepared, so they'd, they'd be spending half the day working on things that they could have been working on during the month hiatus between uh, negotiating sessions. Um, and ultimately, they were able to drag the whole thing out until uh, in a year's time, we still didn't have a contract. And by that time, the employer was able to very cynically say to the employees, Where, what, have, what has the union done for you? They've been here for a year and they haven't gotten you anything. Well, of course, it wasn't because the union didn't want to give the employees anything. It was the employer that didn't want to agree to anything. And ironically, once the union was voted out after that year, we, we did have another election. The union lost the second election by two votes. Um, a couple of weeks later, the employer sat down and gave all the employees three and four dollar an hour wage increases. Basically what we were asking for at the bargaining table and that they said they couldn't possibly agree to. And... Um, at the end of the day, um, it's the failing of federal law to require the employer to really negotiate in good faith that, um, that caused our defeat there. And um, with all the talk about income inequality and, the, uh, and wage stagnation and the top 1% in the country having more and more of the wealth, um, it's frustrating to me, as somebody who's spent his life practicing labor law, that there's not more talk about the constructive role that unions could, uh, could fill in helping to remedy those issues. So I'm hoping that the book will um, perhaps raise consciousness and 
generate some discussion about that um, in the context of the story of Rosie and her uh, her very brave coworkers. Wow, yeah, it's um, quite the project. And I want to ask, I have a number of follow-up questions, but I want to start with Rosie okay. um, and ask you when you first met Rosie. I met her at a meeting of the employees um, right after the, um, the union won the election. I was not directly involved uh, at the initial stage. When she contacted the union, she spoke directly to Chester Zuniga. Um, so he, and then he met with her and a small group of her coworkers. And Chester was the secretary of the union? Secretary Treasurer, mm -hmm. right, right. And then, um, so after he met with Rosie and a group of, I think, about 20 of her co-workers, they all took authorization cards and, and went out and got their, um, uh, their co-workers to sign them. So after the election, um, actually, I take it back. I met her before the election because um, uh, I was down there for the election itself. There was a pre-election conference and that was when I met Rosie. You know, was that when the Labor Board held the pre-election conference, and we talked about what hours the election was going to be held at, uh, what locations in the workplace. We went around and looked at where the locations were were going to be. We set up who the um, uh, who the union observers were going to be during the election and that kind of thing. And that was when I met her. I I really first. Um, you know, spoke to her at length when we were preparing for negotiations. And um, so that was after the election, after the union was voted in. And I went down and I met with her and a small group of um, other employees who were going to be the rank and file members of the union negotiating team. And how, why did you decide to center the book around her? She was uh, very brave. She she had a lot to lose. Um, she was a single mom, two young daughters. Um, I think when this started, one of, one of her girls was about nine and the other was about 12, uh, obviously a little bit older now. Um, and she had one of the better jobs at Marquez Brothers. Um, she worked in quality control. So she would go around and be gathering samples of cheese and taking them back to the laboratory to be tested for the presence of antibiotics and other contaminants and things. She was getting $13 an hour, which by Marquez Brothers standards made her one of the more highly paid um, employees. So she had a lot to lose. But, um, and I think the impetus for her was that there was a plant manager who was well liked by the employees and he got, they, they don't know exactly what happened. One day he was just gone. They didn't know if he quit, if he was fired, but he was just gone. And within a matter of days, they had a new plant manager come in and he acted like a padrone, which in Mexico is a landowner that's all, who has almost a feudal relationship with the people working his land. And this new manager... Um, was very dismissive to the employees. He would walk around snapping his fingers at them and clapping and, you know, telling them to get to work. And he started firing a few supervisors who they had liked. And people looked around and said, we need some protection and this is not right. And Rosie was one of those people. Um, I'm sorry, what was the what was the question again? I, the question uh, was why you chose to. Oh, why her. I chose to center on her. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so she was the first one to contact uh, Chester Suniga at the Teamsters, and then when we um, won the election and we started uh, negotiating, you know, it was clear that she was a leader. Um, I mean, I knew that from uh, the fact that she had gone to Chester and was the key person communicating with him. But even during negotiations, when we were discussing issues, she was clearly um, uh, a leader in that regard. Um, 
at one point, the California Assembly Labor and uh, Employment um, Committee was holding hearings on issues facing immigrant workers in California. And they invited the union to send some Marquez Brothers employees to testify. And Rosie agreed to testify. And she went to Sacramento. And you know, this is somebody with a high school education um, who's not used to speaking in front of large groups of people, um, who went to this assembly hearing and uh, found out the day before that Marquez Brothers was sending its chief negotiator, its general counsel, and two other executives to go sit in the audience. And although they denied it up and down, the only reason to send that many people from such a high level was to try to intimidate her. And she got up and gave her testimony and did a wonderful job. Um, later on, when we got to a second union election and uh, the plant manager tried to put her on the spot in front of a meeting of the employees, um, I mean, she, she was asking questions and he was having a hard time answering them. So he called on another employee to, um, uh, to address some issue involving the union. And this, he knew this other employee was going to be very negative about the union. He asked Rosie if she wanted to respond. Um, and again, it was, it was an intimidating uh, situation. And she spoke her mind. And she wasn't afraid. She ultimately did get fired um, about eight months after... Um, the union lost the second election. Uh, we filed unfair labor practice charges over that. The labor board again um, failed to do anything, even though we had pretty substantial evidence that uh, there was um, animus against her. For example, sending four high-level people to this assembly hearing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was why. Um, I, I liked Rosie. I thought she was... Um, uh, a stand-up person. Um, she had a lot to lose. She stuck her neck out, and um, and I don't think she has any regrets now, even though she she did ultimately get fired. That's amazing. Um, do you know what she's doing now? She's working in a uh, insurance office. I think she's making. I know she's making less now than she was making at Marquez Brothers. But um, she's taking community college classes at night. It was always her dream to go to college. Um, so she's doing that now. And she, when she gets her uh, associate's degree, she wants to go on and get her bachelor's at uh, Fresno State. And she's raising her daughters. And she's doing okay. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so Rosie and you were saying something like... 80% of her coworkers are um, Latin American? Well, 98% are, are uh, Latin American. Mm -hmm. um, I think almost all Mexican. Mm -hmm. um, she estimated that 80% were undocumented. I'm a little skeptical of that, but I don't really know. Um, I mean, Early on in the union campaign, there were rumors that immigration was going to show up at the um, human resource office on payday and start checking on people who were undocumented. Everybody thought that the company was starting these rumors, but of course we could never prove it and we could never tie it back to them. But nobody did show up for immigration. Um, Although I think there were a lot of things that the company did that were pretty reprehensible, I don't think that they were playing the deportation card. Um, uh, and, and I get the sense that they were pretty careful in their employment practices. There are a lot of employers in California who will hire undocumented workers, and then they'll take advantage of them by... Um, making them work long hours without getting overtime uh, or sexually harassing them and doing other things and knowing that the employee is not going to complain because they're undocumented. I never heard anything like that from Marquez Brothers. Um, but that was one of the issues that the Assembly Committee was looking into was some of the employers who are 
really unscrupulous and uh, take advantage of undocumented people. But whether they were documented or not, and whatever the percentage was of undocumented people, even for those who were documented, I think in that community there's a kind of an inherent fear that something might happen. Um, I, I don't think they're too... They're not that many generations removed from coming to the United States that they yet feel completely comfortable that they are legitimately here or that they're citizens or whatever the case might be. So I, it's my understanding that the demographics um, have shifted in that way quite a bit in the last 30, 20 years. Um of who's working sort of rank and file jobs. Um, and so what is the role that you think that labor should be playing in immig immigrant rights or immigration reform? Um, well, the Teamsters, I, I think union has a role to play uh, with regard to immigration uh, reform and helping immigrant workers. And um there's a uh, gentleman named Rome Alois, who is a Teamsters vice president who's based in San Francisco. And he's basically the top Teamster in Northern California uh, and one of the top people in the country. And um, uh, Rome recognizes that there's a need in uh, the San Joaquin and Sacramento Valleys of California uh, to help immigrant employees. And so um, he's hiring young people um, of Mexican descent who speak Spanish and they're starting to be more active in the Latino community. And the other role is the same role that the Teamsters played with regard to Marquez Brothers, which is um, a, a more of a traditional collective bargaining role and uh, negotiating with employers to bring some degree of equity to the workplace. Do you think the unions, um, I guess the major playing unions in the labor movement right now have been at all afraid of taking on immigration? I don't think so. No. My, my sense is that they're very supportive of immigration reform. It's funny, um, with all the criticism that I've seen of organized labor in recent years, I've, I've, seen, I've got firsthand uh, experience with them taking positions on things that are really not in their self-interest. So, for example, uh, labor has been very supportive of the, the movement now to get a $15 minimum wage um, all over the country. What? How does that qualify as not in the self-interest of the unions? Well, because um, if you've got employees that are getting $8, $9, $10 an hour, and um, they can't live on that. They may reach out to a union to get representation to try to improve their situation. If it happens through the law, and uh, let's say an entire state were to raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour, well, now I don't really need the union to get me up from $10 an hour. It's, it's happened by virtue of law. Um, so um, I... And, and I think it, it's very commendable that labor is willing to do, they'll, they'll take the right position to do, to do the right thing, even though it may not necessarily be in their own long-term interest. Um, so I want to go back um, a little bit. You were talking about you're hoping that this book generates discussion about the role that the unions could play in growing inequality in this country and sort of the um, inability of the law to support workers. Um, and so I wanted to know what, I guess, do you have, um, I, I mean, this is just a super broad question, but do you have a vision of um, where we should be moving in, in that direction? Um. Well, I think there are legal reforms that, um, that could be implemented that would certainly help. Um, one of them would be to go back to the pre-Taft-Hartley um, standard, which is if the union presents 
um, evidence that a majority of the employees want the union, they've signed authorization cards or signed petitions, then the employer has to bargain with the union, period. I, I, part of the rationale for the Taft-Hartley Act was that um, there were allegations, and I suppose some of it was true, that there were union officials who were browbeating people into signing cards against their will. Well, that, it was a different world then. You know, um, you had dock workers in the 1940s and 50s when, you know, those were pretty tough places. Now, I'm sure they're still pretty tough, but I don't think you have those kinds of things really happening anymore. And, of course, the employers have become very sophisticated in um, using that law to drag the process out and defeat the union. So I, I would like to see us go back to the pre Taft-Hartley um, law. The other thing that would help, and, and this was proposed in the Employee Free Choice Act at uh, the beginning of uh, President Obama's first term, and it didn't go anywhere, but anyway, one of its provisions um, said that in a first-time negotiation, uh, the parties would have three months in which to negotiate a contract. Um, if they couldn't get it done within three months, they would go to mediation. A mediator would try to resolve the disputes, uh, areas of dispute. If that still did not bring around an agreement, then um, it would go to uh, what's called interest arbitration. And basically you would have an arbitrator deciding what an appropriate contract should be. And, um, you know, they would look at things like, um, well, what are the wages that the employees are getting now? What do other employees doing the same kind of work get? Um, who are the employer's competitors? What is the employer's financial condition like? Um, all of those kinds of things. And in the case of Marquette's brothers, I think if there was something like that, that uh, the employer knew at the end of the day was going to be the final determiner determining factor of what an agreement um, would end up looking like, I think they would have been much more reasonable at the bargaining table. The union was not making outrageous demands. Granted, they were, they were going to cost the employer a lot more than what they were paying, but they could afford it, and it wouldn't have broken them. They would have still made plenty of money. And I suspect that if they knew ultimately an arbitrator was going to force something on them, if they didn't reach a reasonable agreement, they would have come around. Um, I think that would be a big uh, reform that would be helpful. And you wouldn't have employers trying to thwart uh, their workers and unions in a first-time contract by just trying to drag the whole thing out until everybody, the employees got disgusted and and uh, fed up with it. Do you see either of those things happening in the future? Um, probably not. Not in the current political climate, which is why I'm hoping maybe this book will generate some more discussion. Um, the National Labor Relations Board um, did implement some new uh, rules recently that will... Um, um, greatly limit the ability of employers to, um, to force hearings. And, and that hearing process is one of the ways that they would use to um, lengthen the time between the union filing and the union election and let their anti-union busters go out and do their thing. Um, so uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that those rules are going to help but they're not going to be enough. Um, and let's face it, if there's not the political will to change things, they're not going to change. And the political will isn't going to change unless public perception starts to change. And there's been so much union bashing going on uh, in, in the press in recent years. Um, I, I would like to see some of the more positive aspects of what unions could do, um, talked about and highlighted. Yeah, so I guess my um, 
last question is just a little bit more Blue Mountain Center focused. And so what do you think the you're writing this book and you're saying that you hope that it generates conversation around this. What do you think the role of um, writers and artists and this the creative set is in, um, I guess, pushing change like this to happen? Or why did you choose a book as opposed to another medium? Right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not an artist. I'm not a musician. Um, I started out in the newspaper business, so I've always enjoyed writing. And as a lawyer, I still do a mm -hmm. lot of writing. So I think that was the natural uh, uh, medium for me to, to take. Um, I, I think um, artists of all kinds and musicians and activists, um, filmmakers, writers, all can um, promote justice and, and a better society in so many different ways. And I see so many different people at Blue Mountain who are um, uh, engaged in uh, different activities, different, different causes, different um, things that they would like to see improved. Um, and, and I think, you know, um, uh, workplace justice is, is one of those. Um, I think it's wonderful that Blue Mountain um, uh, started an endowment in the name of Born Cherkov, who was a wonderful friend of mine and a great uh, champion of organized labor and workers' rights and uh, immigrant uh, workers as well. He was the first general counsel for the Agricultural Labor Relations Board. So um, I think that's a wonderful thing that Blue Mountain is doing, and I'm very grateful to be uh, be given the uh, residence and board's name this year. Thank you. I think that's a great note to end on. Um, okay. I'm very excited to, to read your book, and I'm very glad that you're telling this story. Thanks, Elmer. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thank you.